1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
2: What does an 18-year veteran of the tech industry and a 20-year veteran of the military have in common? More than you might think. Welcome, everyone, to the, the second, second Act Podcast, Podcast, leveling up your life's journey. You get saved! Another day, another recording, John. Let's do it, man. Let's, uh,
0: let's knock this one out of the park. I'm excited.
2: Welcome back, everyone, to the Second Act Podcast with Michael and John. We are thrilled to have another guest speaker on our show today, who John is going to introduce for us.
0: I am excited about this episode because... Today, we have Vineet Rajan. Vineet, he immigrated from the U.S. when he was six years old and grew up in Maryland as an avid sports player. When the events of 9-11 transpired, Vineet felt duty to help protect our nation, and he is a fellow Marine Corps veteran, Yeah, where he served in combat, assisted in national policymaking on Capitol Hill and the Pentagon and uh, as the first Marine Corps exchange officer to the British government. That's awesome. Wow. If that wasn't impressive enough, Vineet holds an MBA from Stanford and a master's in international relations from the University of Cambridge with distinction and is now a serial entrepreneur. Vineet is currently the CEO and co-founder of Forte, a mental well-being platform that connects every employee to certified guides so they can be present, find focus, and live a more fulfilled life. Outside of work, Vanit enjoys spending time with his wife and best friend of 15 years, as well as their two kids, being outdoors and traveling. His hobbies include coffee and books, (laughs) a great combo that I imagine have played some interesting roles in his life journey. So welcome to the
2: show, Vanit. Welcome.
1: Well, thanks, Jens, for having me. That bio is uh, actually listening to it always <laughs> surprises me because as a young little kid, I, no one would have
2: expected, least of all me, that my life would turn out this way. So I'm I'm really grateful to be here with y'all. Yeah, we're grateful to have you, and that is impressive uh, to say the least. Um, you got some pretty elite universities on there, and it sounds like you did some amazing things in the in the Marine Corps. And thank you for your service.
0: I feel like of you're course. the perfect medium between Michael and I, being a Marine. And now you're in the kind of the tech sector. (laughs) You're kind of like a a Michael and John, you're in the middle of Michael John sandwich. So that's right. Best of both worlds right here.
1: (laughs) I don't know about the sandwich part, but the best of both worlds for sure.
0: Well, man, thanks thanks for being on the show and and I'll start it off. Um, So you immigrated to the US at an early age. Um, Tell us about that transition from one country to another you know, as a kid and, and some of those moments that maybe stood out in in formulating who Venet is um, and shaped who you are today,
1: yeah, you know, my parents came over to my house this weekend and like surprisingly, we talked about the day we landed in the United States you know we're we're like that classic uh, immigrant story where your your family leaves everything they have. My parents left everything they had, got on a plane because they got they got accepted to come into the United States and live here and we landed in actually first in New York and then, you know, took a little plane over to, to, yeah. to D.C. where we grew up in Maryland. And I remember that day uh, still pretty clearly I was, you know, I hadn't turned six yet, but the lights and everything still is uh, implanted in my mind, in my memory, right? Just so how amazing our country is, the yeah. United States is. Um, but anyway, we grew up in Maryland and we're a blue-collar family. My dad worked uh, multiple blue-collar jobs to make things work. You know, he took one shift and then he went to another shift. And my mom uh, had two young boys, both of whom became Marines, which tells yeah, you something. Yeah, wow. um, and, and uh, you know, she had, you know, her, my father was a, a prior enlisted man himself okay. in the Indian service. Okay. And so he had, she was either raising two U.S. Marines and married to an enlisted man. So <laughs> my mom is the most courageous <laughs> human I know. Um, and, and she's going to get a big room in heaven, I suspect, because of her service to us but we grew up as a healthy, like a happy family. We didn't have a whole lot, but I knew despite the hard challenges, my parents loved me. Um, And now being a parent myself, I so appreciate, gosh dang, how much they sacrificed uh, for us. But yeah, I spent, because my parents worked so much to make things work for our family in this new country of ours, I left my brother and I largely to be outside and be like, a street kid, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so <laughs> we, we, we didn't have a lot of money, but we had a lot of energy. And so we used that mostly for good things. So we played street hockey, football, basketball, soccer. Uh, we ran a lot. We fought a lot. We threw, I don't think kids do this anymore. Maybe it's not a bad thing, but we threw a lot of stones at each other. You know, like all <laughs> the things that like young boys did, I guess in the 90s, right? Yeah. Um, and that process uh, uh, really formed me right? It formed this idea of being individually known by my peers, which was the neighborhood kids. Uh, I realized I had a really big competitive nature to myself that showed up uh, later in my later life. I learned to be a little bit of an athlete, you know, but also there were some challenging seasons of that time too. My, you know, being an immigrant in a country that you don't know very much about is horn. It just is. And uh, watching my parents struggle in some seasons, affected them and significantly affected me. And I think I, you know, in that part of, of all of us growing up, you start to hide things that you feel vulnerable yeah. about. Um, I certainly did. And I learned that actually the best way to get out of a fight is to make fun of yourself uh, or yeah. run really fast. So yeah. I'm good at making fun of myself a lot and running, <laughs> not so fast now because I'm old, but I was at one point. Um, And I also learned to cover up my emotions and my thoughts and my feelings. And like this callousness uh, kind of overwhelmed me a little bit. And it's taken a long time to maybe strip away some of those uh, exterior kind of hardness that I learned in my earlier years. So there was a lot there, lots
2: of good, maybe some challenging seasons as well. And you said um, you came from humble beginnings, but you felt loved by your parents. You, You knew that. Uh, throughout your whole early childhood um, memories. And tell us, what, what were the things, well, I couldn't provide stuff necessarily. What were the things in your early childhood that helped you know that they were there for you and loved you as best as possible? Totally. I'm going to try my best not to cry on this <laughs> yeah, podcast. Yeah, well, right? try not yeah. to make us cry either, please. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, we, I grew up in a very strict house. Um, again, not shocking now that, the Marine Corps felt like a safe space. <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> um, I like what I knew, right? But like, I knew my mom and dad loved me because they worked like dogs. And mm. wow, to make things work, my dad uh, rode his bicycle in a blizzard to go to his second shift to put food on the table. As a grown man now, I can't. I I still don't understand how that works. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, he lost his identity coming over here. All the things that he worked so damn hard for. He had to give all that up and be at the bottom of the barrel, the bottom of the ladder, and lose any kind of social capital that he might have had. As a man, that feels a freaking really hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. My mother watched her husband struggle to make things work while she worked her her hard out for us, and then came home to do all the things that um, she was expected to do, which was like, make food and like, chase these kids and try to make them clean and like, you know, teach us manners and all the things. And I don't know how she did it. She also went to school at night to continue her education, which gave me a, a, a profound respect for ladies and all that society expects of them that I, I can't do. I, could, I couldn't I could be a woman yeah. in many ways. like I can't yeah. do all the things that I think sometimes society, at least in the 90s, expected them to be, all yeah. that they expected them to be. My mom was all of that and more. But I think the thing I'll never forget about my mom that has affected me and has affected my kids is her devotion to her faith, mm-hmm. her conviction. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter what we did or did not have. We prayed, and we were always grateful. Yeah. And that took a force of will for a lady to be in our house, to make that happen when candidly, none of the men wanted to, you know? Um, So I knew she loved me and my father loved me, despite what the world that they couldn't provide in a worldly way, they provided in ways that profoundly impacted who I am today.
0: Wow. You know, I, I Vinnie, I know you understand this, but I typically tell or often tell people that you know, when I deployed, that my wife had the hardest job. You know, people think, oh, "Oh, deploying whatever, depending on where you're going, that must be very difficult. I think, man, you know, the way you talk about your mom is the way I talk about my wife when I'm gone for nine months. Holding down the fort, getting the kids ready, going off and working, getting them back home, doing the things and then, you know... Doing it with with grace and ease. It sounds like your mom, you know, it was exactly that, and that's awesome. Yeah, my, my
1: wife, when our first year of marriage, uh, she saw me for three weeks. Yeah, right. Oof. It was like workups. Yep. And then uh, out to my first pump in Iraq, uh, I called her like randomly in from the desert, uh, and then like there were a couple of calls were like I gotta go because you know bad things were happening. Yeah. Right. And um, gosh, that is so much harder to be on the other side of that call than it is to be at a gunfight. Like it's just, you know, you feel helpless, right? Like I, I watching my kids be born. I watched my wife uh, have these babies and I'm like helpless. I can't do anything really to help her. But at least I was next to her in this case. She wasn't even with me. She just randomly got an update once. a while. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I think God knew what I needed. He gave me an amazing mom and dad. And then he gave me, the most amazing wife that I could ever have dreamed of yeah. because they, they have made me who I am today.
0: I want to, I want to go back um, because you talk about your transition over to the States and, you know, being an early age, you talk about making fun of yourself or running fast, but also you are an athlete. And I always looked at the sports field, whether it's basketball, soccer, football, baseball, the sports field as the, the, the level playing field right the thing that equaled us all out did did that did you find solace in athletics and did you find that that kind of was the place where you could be vineet and be who you were and and stand out there and kind of let those other you know impressions those other um feelings kind of be dissuaded
1: Totally. I mean, I think, um, so I, I didn't play competitive sports. I played like street whatever okay. in elementary school and in middle school, you know, uh, I always tell people, "It's was like, hey, you get really fast when you're, you're trying not to get beat up, right? You're just like, you get really fast. And so I got a little bit of track training, I guess, in middle school, but not formally. Uh, and then in high school, I was on a blacktop playing, uh, I think, like soccer or something. And I ran across the blacktop and some teacher, unbeknownst to me, who was a track coach, was like, hey, do that again. And so I just ran across and he's like, you were kind of fast. Um, <laughs> so so he's like, come out of the track team. I was like, I've never been invited to do anything, you know, with anyone. Right. So I was like, sure. So I showed up, guys, I'll tell you my first track meet my freshman year. It was like, I went to one practice and had a track meet, you know, because I was kind of like recruited late, I guess. I think the coach regretted his invitation because it was like the, he put me, he's like, I'm going to put you in the mile run. And I was like, sure. I don't even know what a mile run is. But he's like, just run around this thing four times. I'm like, okay. Guys, they had to wait for me to finish <laughs> so they could start the next event, right? People were like, like the boys were done. The girls were done. Uh, teachers are having their popcorn. And I was like, what is happening? I suck so bad. Um, eventually, I learned to not suck so bad. And I end up getting put in the half mile. So... Uh, if for those of you run track, you know, it's like the most feared kind of race because unlike a, a quarter mile, it's, it's, it's not one lap, it's two, but it's considered a sprint. And unlike, you know, and we're, we're at a mile where it's actually a run. It's like you're just sprinting for two laps. Yeah. And what I learned in that process, uh, I got good at it, was I have a significantly high pain tolerance and despite my body wanting to give up and i'm running out of breath and my like my 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 eyesight is like zoning out a little bit cuz i'm about to black out my mind my force of will was determined to push yeah and that served me well in track and it served me well in wrestling and it served me well in football i was a mediocre at best athlete in high school but it served me phenomenally yeah. well in the us marines right so athleticism was a thing that kept me in high school candidly. I almost didn't make it out of high school because I didn't really care about, I didn't really care for English, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm being honest. Yeah. Uh, But my coaches were like, hey, you're going to go to class because we need you to run on Friday, you know? And so uh, athletics um, kept me safe uh, and kept me in class, but it also led me to your point, John. I still do this today. It's very cathartic for me to go on a, a couple mile run and get it out. Yeah. And just get it out of my body.
2: And Vinita, you know, it started, it sounded like from what you said earlier, growing up, that development of the mental fortitude that you have when it comes to the things that, that you want to pursue. And just coming back for a second to the shout out that you gave to your mom and dad and especially your mom, um, for our audience who's listening, a simple thank you for the little things goes a long way. Absolutely. You don't have a lot to offer. In certain circumstances, but a show of appreciation and a gratitude through words. Because a lot of times people keep it in. Yep. They don't let it out. And just saying those words goes a long, Her. long way. Uh, sorry to digress there, but I wanted to, to just bring that up and, and now bring us back to your athletics and college and then 9-11 happens. And you feel a calling to join the Marine Corps.
1: Well, I mean, so 9-11, I mean, for those of us who I know, like my kids now read about 9-11, which is a weird (laughs) kind of thing, actually. Um, uh, But, you know, 9-11, I was in Maryland. My mom was working in D.C. at the World Bank headquarters at the time. And uh, I was in AP physics class uh, when 9-11 happened. Like, I remember exactly where I was sitting, exactly like most Americans, I think, who were around for that crazy day. I know distinctly where I was. And uh, people started crying because it was on the TV. And then we got sent home quickly. My mom came home. Up to that point, I I mean, I was 16. I was a senior. I had no plan. I had like literally like, guys, I had no plan like what to do after high school. I was just like, I'm going to keep, you know, I don't know. And um, but like three weeks later, I was like, okay, I guess I'm joining the Marines. And I, you know, it was like a pretty quick snap, you know, and you know it could be the Marine Corps is like the greatest propaganda machine in the under the sun uh you know for young I think at the time young guys or something but it's also like hey I was like doing calculations I was like well I know I'm kind of good at some of this stuff now and uh in my class there was two dudes who wanted to be seals and so the three of us would train every like like weirdos we would like run every day it would wait on our back and SWIM and all that. So I was like, well, I'm going to go join the special forces of the Navy or the Marines. And I thought, man, if I don't make it in the Navy's bus, I got to be in the Navy. So I was like, all right, that's, that ain't going to work it out for me. Ouch. So I was like, ah, uh, it's true. They're like, so I was like, okay, I'll join the Marines. And like, there's a high likelihood I won't make the special forces of the Marines. And so, but I'll still be in the Marines. Like, it's, it's all right. So, um, I had a recruiter come to my house, uh, unbeknownst to my father. My father came home early from work, which wasn't necessarily the plan. He saw this recruiter in the house. He asked, What about officer programs? And the Marine kind of said, Hey, he's not, he's not ready. He's not qualified to be an officer. He's not, he's not it, it you know, to be direct, he's not good enough. Um my father didn't really appreciate that, politely excused him out of our house and said, Hey, look, I left my I left everything I needed for you to come here. But if you were gonna enlist in the service, I would have just stayed in India. We're like wow. I listened to the service. Like I didn't come here for that. Man. Now, I can't stop you because I joined the service. So I get it. Like, if you're going to go, you're going to go, but you're going to at least apply to the officer program. And if you don't get in, I'll support you. But at least apply. Don't believe what that guy told you about you. I know you better than you do. I was like, sure, Dad, whatever. I thought, like, great. He's going to sign the paperwork. I'm not going to get in. We're going to go on our merry way. Well, thankfully, I uh, got out of the plan and I got a full ride. So I, I, we couldn't afford to go to college, but I got a full ride. Wow. Um, Because I ran fast. And so, John, you would appreciate this. Recruiting, like, you take your PFT. Didn't even know what a PFT was because that's how ill-prepared I was. What is a
2: PFT? Physical
1: physical fitness test. So I went to the Ah. recruiting station for the officer application. Um, There's, like, 30 kids lined up in February in the cold, sleeting rain. We got this interview. And then, like, this master sergeant who was, like, the biggest dude I've ever seen in my entire life (laughs) was, like, hey, get ready for the PFT. And I was like, what's a PFT? He's like, you dummy. It's a physical fitness test. I didn't, have, cl- I didn't even have like running clothes. So I just had, luckily I had basketball shorts in the trunk and basketball shoes. And I did pull ups. I did sit ups and I started running around this uh, building. But remember I used to run like reasonably fast. <laughs> so I've never run three miles in my like for time in my life. And it's sleeting rain. And all these guys were really prepared and their parents in there and everybody knows what to do. And I'm like, I'm lost. Well, I run and I get done and the, the major comes out in his in his uh, service uniform and he's like, and the master was like, do you know what you've ran? And I was like, I have no idea. And I was like, he, he's like, you ran a 16 flat. And I said, hey, is that good? And I was like, for I three
2: mi- yeah Yeah. You,
1: you said it's three miles? Yeah. That was the distance? Correct. Wow. In basketball shorts and basketball shoes and the sleet of rain.
2: And, so and, I was like,
0: is that good? And for the record, if you get it at 18 minutes flat, that's a perfect score. So the neat crushed you it crushed by it. two minutes. Yeah.
2: Well,
1: I was, well so here's the thing. Guys, I didn't even know what a good score was. Like That's how ill-equipped I was. So I joined the Marines not knowing. And so I got a full scholarship, went to, went to school in Philly, met my wife the first summer college as the best outcome, and then graduated and became a second lieutenant in the Marines and spent 11 years doing that.
0: Nice. Boom. That's awesome.
1: It was wild. Wow. And you spent 10, 10 years in the Marines? Is that right? Yeah. Almost 11 years. So, you know, I did a tour in Iraq and did a tour in Afghanistan that did weird politics stuff on Capitol Hill and the Pentagon. And then the last job was like, go to the UK and be a British Intel officer, which is exciting and scary all at the same time. So it was anything but a traditional career, but it was, I couldn't believe I got to serve in all those
0: ways. Man. Talk, Talk real quick about that relationship between the US and the UK and how unique that is that you would be sent over there to, to, you know, represent the Marine Corps.
1: Yeah, it. it you know, for those who don't uh, know, it's like the our closest allies, ally is the is the British service and and vice versa. And um, you know, what we've had a history in the service to exchange officers before, pilots, as you know, John, yeah. and and infantrymen and all those. But intel is like that's the closest cards to the chest, if you will. Like we don't we don't send our intel officers over there and vice versa to exchange because. You know, like that's where all the crazy secrets lie, you know, is what those <laughs> Intel people create. honestly. And so the Marines, because we're aggressive, we're like, hey, let's 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 do this thing so that actually the idea would be is like as these people become general officers, we can more speedily exchange Intel, more speedily integrate our Intel services. Yeah. And so uh, by good fortune and God's grace, I got to be the the first guy to go get selected to do that. And I couldn't believe that the, the US Marines were paying me to live in Cambridge, <laughs> England, guys. Oh, like, wow. Pinky up, right? Like, um, fancy. So ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah, so then I got to go, I got to live by the River Cam in this historic town. And then I got to go to work every day and realize I knew nothing about how uh, the British service thought about Intel. It's fundamentally different, a different architecture, different rules and policies. And then the irony of that is that they made me be a leader in, in one of their most critical like sections. So I was, I briefed the prime minister of the United Kingdom, many parliamentarians, many general cool. officers. And I learned so much about what it looked like to lead cross-culturally. So eventually I got to lead people. Like I was like the, the team where the general just put like random people he didn't know what to do with because they're like from different countries. So I had Brits, Kiwis, Canadians, Aussies, and Yanks. And the story is like Venet has like kind of this weird <laughs> eclectic group. They all theoretically spoke
2: English, but no one understood each other. Right. <laughs> so it was, it was fun for sure. And the, the British intelligence apparatus, is that the GCHQ? Is that what it's called? Uh, a, it... well,
1: I'm, that's cool that you even know that. <laughs> um, so it, it's their is like our apparatus. It's, it's, there's a lot of known and unknown organizations, GCHQ being one of them. Yeah. Um, but there's there's a lot, right? So there's there's the CIA equivalent, there's the NSA right. equivalent, there's all okay. those things fully integrated, just like our system. They just have much fancier and nicer words for them.
0: <laughs>
2: very cool. So very cool. So
0: after 10 years, or or during that 10 year span, you're thinking about getting out, right? And Ten years for those of the of you that don't know and not military, it's that's kind of a threshold. You 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 either kind of decide you're gonna stay in and, and play that game or you decide you're gonna you're gonna jump out. And so you're at ten years in the Marine Corps, you're in Cambridge, you're you're getting some of these amazing opportunities, but you decide that you wanna pursue something different. So kind of talk to me real quick about where you're at. In your career what that effect has on your family and what in, enabled or decide, made the deciding factor for you to jump out
1: i still say this leaving the Marines is the hardest decision i've ever had to make i uh i loved it i love every bit of it like i felt um it's like this weird thing where whoever thought that a skinny little immigrant kid would do well in the U.S. Marines. Like really. I, I certainly was like, "What the heck is happening?" Um, I thought surely one day, somebody will figure it out that I don't know what I'm doing.
0: Which, and you know? just real quick, I would cut you off. That's proof that the Marine Corps does an amazing job at allowing people to succeed and thrive and make a name for themselves if they just apply themselves. So,
1: I think that's true. They, nice. they do. I do buy into the logic of like. Hey, you will not be the same human when you leave the Marines, oh, yeah.
0: whether it's four years or 40 years.
1: Right. Mostly okay. for the good, I would argue. Yeah. Right. Um, but I was a, you know, I was at almost eleven years. I was a major when I left the service. Um, and I actually wasn't planning on getting out. Somewhere after the combat tours and everything, and then like the capital fellowship, like working for a congressman in a suit and tie, and then like this exchange. I was like, I wasn't that smart, but I wasn't dumb. I could tell like Hey, the Marine Corps keeps on sending me places that candidly I shouldn't be it. And um I was like, Maybe uh, maybe I'll like stay in here and I've done quote unquote the harder the hard things, right? Yeah. Like all the fun is at the captain level and below. That's where like you, you sling it, you like go with the men and women and, and and be on the ground. So I got kind of promoted out of that anyway. So I was like, well, I guess I'll just do weird policy things or whatever. Um you know, my wife, after four, the first four or five years, like, hey, please don't put your special forces package in. I've already, you've already been gone way too much. And I promised her I wouldn't. So I was like, I got to do other things. So that's why I applied to all these weird programs. But then um, somewhere in that journey, I felt called to get out. Um, and I mean that intentionally. I call, I felt called to get in and I must have cried and uh, tried to ignore it for a year. But it was so strong, guys, that I it was like, hey, either I believe in my faith and my conviction of who I am or I don't. Um, And so I resigned uh, with a brand new daughter, uh, you know, pretty young son, a wife in a foreign country. And I was was also going to Cambridge to study international relations at the time. Uh, And so there was a lot of pressure and stress, as you might imagine. So we resigned. And then, you know, like, you know, John, like when you resign, you have like, I had like nine or 10 months before I got out of the service. So I had 10 more months of work. Yeah. No idea what to do with my life cuz at that point 15 years of my life have been identified you know as training to be a US Marine or being a US Marine, right? 4 years of college and 11 years of service. So there was a lot of soul searching in the long shadow that I still live with and part of the reason why I started Forte was I started valuing and seeing myself for what I do not for who I am. Yeah. Right? And like, you, you strip away your identity as somebody who performs, and I, I had a reputation of performing. Yeah. Right? You perform, you perform, you perform, you perform. Like, you're good at doing this thing. You take that thing away. Then the question is like, who are you? And the, the carnal sin that I made was I started looking at the favor that was given to me from my perspective from God and worshiping that instead of God himself. And so I, I, said, I would never do that again. And so it was a step of faith actually to get caught, like to leave voluntarily out of the service in some ways in the, the apex of my career.
2: Wow. Benito, there's a, there's a really interesting book if you haven't read it called The Untethered Soul that talks, um, quite a bit about who are you and Ooh, I like this. they have a number of different perspectives that they walk the reader or listener, if you do the audiobook through. But it, it really makes you question how you define who you are versus how you think you should define yourself um, among society. Yeah. It's it's pretty fascinating. But you said there's a calling getting out. Tell us a little bit about uh, the lead up into that um, and then, you know, eventually making your way out of the Marine. What was that thing or things that catalyzed in your mind that it's time to go?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes our biggest letdowns or vulnerabilities or scars are the things that drive us into who we ought to be, right? Um, those trying moments, those moments of pressure, uh, that's where you're, convi- you, you know, you're, it's easy to say you have values. It's when those values are, are tested that you find out your conviction for, for those values in the first place. Oh yeah. mm-hmm. And, and, and um, I found that to be true to me, right? If I believed a certain faith and a worldview. And I believed in, I joined the Marines actually weirdly enough because I love people, right? That's, that's actually the logic of why I joined the Marines. It wasn't because, I mean, again, skinny little Indian kid <laughs> isn't exactly the stereotypical guy that joins the U.S. Marines, not compared to everybody else that I saw in that line on, in Frederick uh, back in the day. So the, that same reason is why I got called out, I felt, right? I wanted, lo- I wanted to serve people because I love them. And I wanted to do that in a wider aperture than in maybe the the National Defense Service. I didn't know how that looked. I was like uh, really afraid that God was going to ask me to go be a pastor or something (laughs) or like a nonprofit leader. None of those things are bad. They're just, I was wired to be in the messiness of the middle and to be where people are, every like regular. Like The great thing about the Marines, and I think the service in general, is that you're shoulder-to-shoulder with a bunch of people. Uh, that look and sound and feel different than you. Different socioeconomic backgrounds, different races, different yep. religions, different everything. Yep. And I wanted to be in and amongst the people of everything, not in you know kind of a uh, held off area. And so that's what called, kind of called me out of the Marines. And I didn't want. I was done. I was kind of tired of the the very wonderful but very specific kind of training at Cambridge. And I was like, well, if I kind of, kind of have to learn how to lead in the normal like business sector. Why don't I go to business school if I can get into somewhere to to one transition and like find out who I am again but like learn
2: what makes business work. And did that it was it in business school or in the journey into business school or when you got out of business school tell us when you sort of mentally were mapping your steps for a career post-military and and sort of that entrepreneurial track that you took.
1: Yeah. So as soon as I like accepted that I was getting out of the service, you know, like the Marine Corps is a cult, as John knows, like, hey, you, you tendered your resignation. You're not getting back in, right? Like that's just, it's not like, it's not a two-way door, right? So uh, once I came to that realization and I, and I signed the paperwork and submitted it off, I was like, hey, what am I going to do with myself? And I kept on coming around this idea that like, well, I love people and I want to serve them through the power of business. So social entrepreneurship, before I even know what those words really were or meant, um, was near and dear to my heart right like how do i serve the poor how do i serve the disenfranchised how do i serve our country or our world in a different way than maybe i was able to in the in the marines um and so then i started looking at business schools and uh, you know i i was i was like try, honestly to god i was like I, I hope i get into one of these schools right and um Sandhya, as she is always doing is is making sure i present myself well and she's reviewing all my applications and she said What's your dream school, Vinny? And I said Stanford. And she goes, I, I don't, I don't see an application for Stanford. <laughs> uh, and I said, Why? Well, I, I, I don't. People like me don't go to Stanford, is what I told her. And to her credit, she said, Well, that's the same thing you told me when I told you to when I suggested you apply to Cambridge instead of the college down in London uh, that you were to take a train for. And I said, Well, that was like a fluke. That was like a one time thing. Uh, and so, long story short, I got into Stanford because my wife. As she always has done since I met her, has seen more of who I am than I could even accept of myself. So we went to Stanford because this my dream school because it's known for social entrepreneurship,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: not because of everything else. It was just like, hey, they're kind of no. That's like their their niche in some ways and and tech, right? Uh, So at business school is where I started formulating like like the tactical ways on how we think about delivering um, business as business for good. Uh, But the seeds of that were planted long before I got into business school.
2: Wow. I sense a little bit of imposter syndrome, which uh, John and I talk about uh, on the show periodically. And I, I know I've suffered uh, degrees of that in my professional career. How do you, how do you deal with it? I, poorly, as you could tell. Right? <laughs> well,
1: um, like in my heart of hearts, I'm still this unworthy little kid sitting in that classroom as a second grader or third grader trying not to get picked on trying not to get laughed at, trying to like make my parents proud with the things that I have. I'm still that kid. Yeah. Like you could put all the badges on me you like, right? It doesn't matter. Um, (laughs) You know, the the struggle that I have for me, and I think many of us feel in our hearts, if we're really being honest with ourselves is, are we worthy of the love that God and society gives us? And the problem is for people like me who want to perform, We're just going to run harder and harder to try to earn that love. The problem is we don't need to. We just got to accept
0: it. Think you know the
2: Brooks ghost? Think again. Introducing the all new better than ever ghost 16. Now with nitrogen infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good. Every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your
0: daily joy ride in the all new nitrogen infused ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com
2: to learn more.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: something you talked about, you know, you got out of the Marine Corps and imposter syndrome is real. And I know you go off and you launch Forte and you're helping organizations unlock inner strength that, you know, is within their people. And I want to hear more about that and see where the future of Forte is going. But for so many military members, it's difficult to break free of what you've done and who you are within the service. I know it was difficult for me. I, for the past year, I dealt with, you know, this big image and now who, you know, who am I, what am I doing on a daily basis? But you left and I want to know, did did you experience any of that issue or, or was it just a quick transition to launching in your, in your entrepreneurial journey and starting Forte? What, what was going through your mind in that process?
1: Gosh, John, I wish I could say it was so quick. I like left and put my hands in my pocket. And I mean, it's what, like, uh, you know, so I, I, I didn't do 20, John. So, like, you know, we're
0: different in that sense. Um, yeah. But 11 years is a long time,
1: you know? Yeah, yeah.
0: It's
2: a good run. I, I mean,
1: like, the, sh- the shadow of the Marines looms large in my life, right? Like, it, yeah. it just is. Uh, so I'm, I've been out for seven years, guys. And, um, I still get messages from people that are my colleagues and they're like, man, we, we wish you were in here or whatever. Um, and, and there's things that happen geopolitically that you're like, uh, man, there's people, uh, bearing the price of my freedom now instead of me doing it. Yeah. And like, I'll, I'll never forget that either. Um, no, it was, it's, it's a rough, messy, not great, you know, transition. I didn't have a I wasn't a senior in rank, so I didn't have any of the rank things or anything. I just missed being with my people, right? Like, I knew my tribe. I knew um, these were some of the most intense go-getter people that I've met. And I'm an intense kind of go-getter person now myself. And so it was like, uh, I felt normal there in some ways. And I felt seen and... um You leave the service and it's like this whole thing about who are we as humans, Michael, like you said about that. It's like, hey, where does our purpose come from? Where does our meaning come from? And I think if you anchor those in the wrong spots, seasons have a beginning and they have an end. You know, a calling mostly has a beginning and has has an end, but the person who's called and the person who's calling you, they're usually permanent,
0: Wow. right?
1: Um, And so I... Misplace my calling as a permanent calling or my season as a permanent season. But the reality is, is, the person who's the God who's calling me is calling me, not what I do. Yeah. And, and so it's taken me seven years to like get here and I'm not done with that transition. Wow. I don't know when that transition will end, but still transitioning candidly. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: I'll tell you whether you serve 11 years or you serve 20, uh, that feeling of of I wish I was still there still exists and it's still a hard transition. And, yeah. and, you know, people that I talk to on, a, on a regular basis say, well, I only served four or I only served. It's like, no, no, no. One, you served, you took, you took that bite yeah. and you did that yep. thing. But two walking away from that, that period of of time and life and that call to service, um, It is uniquely hard. And I agree with you, the, the service, the, the calling or the person that's called and the person. And, and for me, again, the God that's calling you to do something, those don't change. And I agree with you, but it's still hard walking away thinking, am I doing, am I doing the right thing? And, and why (laughs) did I feel this in the first place? And is it misguided? And am I completely stepping off into something I shouldn't be doing? Um, So I commend you one for, for making that decision. Two feeling strongly about the decision and and recognizing that it's it's not going to get easy, but you started and you started something new, forte. So where where is that going and and how is that going now that yeah, it's tell been, us
2: tell us about yeah about forte
1: yeah so forte is like really first of all, it's a mental wellness benefit that benefits everyone. And it's easy to say, but it's harder to execute, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, Forte is largely birthed out of my own shadow of of pain and and insecurity and vulnerability and, and the idea that I idolize what I do, not who I am, right? I value more of what I do than who I am. That's a lie. All of us are going to change jobs and roles and different seasons will ask us to do different things. And that's natural. It's part of life. Yeah. And if we tether our purpose and meaning, so I'm going to use tethered like the, the book that you suggested, the okay. Soul. If we tether our soul to a thing that has a finite beginning and a finite end, our soul is going to get crushed. Mine certainly was, right? It certainly was. And so, part of forte is a daily reminder to myself that I will never make that mistake Lord willing again. I will never perceive my value to be for what I do for a living. It's more important about who I am and who I'm Mm -hmm. becoming. Yes. And that's true for all of us. It doesn't matter what your worldview, what your ethnicity is, what your gender is, what your politics may be. You are worthy to be known and loved for who you are, not what you do. Full stop.
2: That's good. 100%.
1: So Forte is really born out of that. And and so that's the first thing. The second thing is, look, we, we grew up in a blue collar family, and in the 1990s, mental health, I don't know if that was really a thing, but we could have used some help as our family because my parents' mental well-being would have positively affected my p- mental well-being. Conversely, my parents' uh, lack of mental well-being can adversely affect my mental well-being. So mental well-being is a generational thing. Yeah. And you better believe that my brother and I carry the pros and the cons of our upbringing to our children, right? And so like, if you think about that, it's like one of the most important things that we can steward as as people is well-being. Yeah. Right? And so if you think about our companies, our companies historically have been really good at mental health in the sense that there's a clinical need and there's a clinical intervention required to fix that need. Yeah. But the CDC and everybody else would suggest that's a, a significant minority in our population. So an employer is really good at serving at maybe 5% of the pop who might need a clinical intervention and they might be really good at serving 5% of the population who are the, uh, at the pinnacle of that organization for executive coaching which means statistically 90% of your employer's population is largely underserved and ignored and in that 90% population is my parents your parents your wife your my my kids your kids all those people and the human condition isn't a mental health challenge it's called life uh-huh. And so what we want to do is give everybody the opportunity to be individually known and valued for who they are, not necessarily what they do. And here's the, here's the, here's the magic of that, guys, is that if you actually invest in your people proactively, your profits go up. Yeah. Because like I'm not a mathematician, but I know a little bit about profit now. It's revenue minus expenses is equal to profit, very simply, right? <laughs> well, guess what the highest leverage of revenue is? Your people. Guess Amen. what the highest cost line I'm in mean, your P&L? Your people. And so if you're an employer and you're not investing in 90% of your population, you're leaving money on the table. Today's competitive market in a global market that we operate in, your competitive advantage is your people. And people want to be treated as people, not as robots, not as machines, right? And so Forte allows people to have unlimited confidential calls with a guide they get to select in seven different languages, as often as they want, about whatever they want, 100% confidentially. And when we do that, We serve now in several years, serving the majority of our population, not four or 5%. The majority of the population in a company who uses the the service majority of the seasons of their life, and we see, guess what, magic, Uh, retention goes up by over 30% of these companies. Productivity, 95% of the population says that productivity is improved because of Forte. 97% of the population says their well-being is improved, and we know well-being is a leading indicator to your profits. Yeah. So like- if we chase people, profits will come. If we chase profits, people are going to go.
2: Yeah, we, We've we had guests on who have left corporate America due to burnout, yep. health-related Boy. issues because it wasn't a right cultural fit. They weren't there in the right mental headspace after serving those companies for long periods of time, giving it their all. And it's taken a toll, but not a toll that's been fatal, but to the point where they needed to you know, make a hard pivot on something. And now that mental health has moved away from being a taboo subject or topic and more mainstream, people talk about it as holistic health. I think, you know, you're in you're in a sweet spot to deliver on sort of the practical applications of that in the day-to-day improvements of lives for people both personally and in the workforce. So I, I commend you on pursuing this. Yeah.
1: yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, um, it's always interesting when we talk to executives, like, hey, everything's on the line. I was like, hey, look, with all due respect, everything's not on the line, just, just to be honest with you. Like, no one's going to die here, Lord willing, and everything's <laughs> going to be fine. Like, yeah. I was like, hey, when you're clearing rooms in Iraq and Afghanistan, it feels like everything's on the line. You're putting a bird down in a hot LZ. Everything kind of feels on the line. Right. And the reason that people do those kind of wildly stupid things, candidly, right, is because they care about the person next to them. Yep. And the reason they care about the person next to them is because they know that that person knows and loves them for them. And so one of the great, amazing things of the service, any service, candidly, is that kind of affinity for each other. And organizations, are not they don't have the ability to do that at scale because there's organizational challenges. Like if I'm talking to my boss, I'm probably not going to talk to my boss about name the thing. So we can provide that, that affinity and that love and all those things that, quite frankly, are good for the company, is good for the employee. HR person, leader doesn't have to have an awkward conversation with an employee about things that matter to them. It might be their dating life. It might be their elderly parents. It might be this um, challenging colleague. It doesn't, but foretake and process, all that. The other thing that we do, which is very different than the marketplace, is we're not waiting for things to get so dang big that you break, right? Yep. So what we try to do is, which is a crazy idea, guys, I know, is like actually talk to people regularly before things ever go south So when life hits all of us, which they will do, we actually know you. We know Michael and his story and his highs and his lows and his work and his home life and his finance because he shared it with us. And so actually, we can kind of see around the corner with them like, dude, that's coming. Right. Is that like that's like prevention
2: versus treatment sort of? Totally. So like,
1: yeah, prevention versus treatment. Think about that. It's like driving a a car and waiting for your engine, check engine light to come on to like, wait, maybe I should go like do some maintenance. Yeah. Like who does that? Nobody. But we treat our human beings like that. We're like, well, let's just wait till like everybody needs a bunch of drugs and needs to talk to therapists for eight eight months (laughs) and they're burnt the hell out and they got to leave. Like that is not a competitive advantage strategy. That's like hope.
0: It's not a plan.
2: Yeah. Wow.
0: Uh, well, Vinny, when did, when did you start Forte? Fall of 2021. Okay. So you're two and a half years into it. What are you excited about in 2024? What's on the horizon?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm excited. One, that I get to do this every day. And actually like one of the coolest things that I get to do at this company is like, remember I I started this and I left the Marine Corps and I joined the Marine Corps all because I love people, right? Like that's the, the, the thread. And so, like, I get giddy learning about how people's lives get changed. I do. Like, it's super cool, right? So the dialysis Healthcare Tech, who's a single mom, and find out that she can connect to her kids better because of the service, I'm pretty pumped, actually, because yeah. I see me in that kid, right? I get to talk about, like, I get to hear the CEO or the chief operating officer, like, actually processing all the dang stress in his or her life and be able to, like, ameliorate that before he goes home or she goes home. Pretty pumped. Yeah. So that's for me personally. That's like the reason we still do this, right? I think I think societally, which is really important for all of us to think about, is like, hey, we've got a lot of challenges uh, coming down the pipe for our country. You know, I think everybody could appreciate that. Yeah. One of the biggest needs of our time is for us to connect with each other
0: as humans. Yes.
1: Especially those who aren't like us, who don't think like us, who don't worship like us, who don't love like us, who don't, you know, all of the things that look different. But if you strip away the veneer, we're actually the same. We're, we're more sane than different.
2: Yep. hundred percent.
1: And so when you get to talk to a guide, you sort of recognize that you get to see like what it is doing to you. You can't give what you, you don't have. So if you don't have empathy, you don't have love, you don't have acceptance. There's no way in heck you are gonna give that out to anybody else. So societally, I'm not waiting for politics or, or, or church or government, whatever, to save our society. It's going to be one human at a time. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. And, and we're going to build that one human at a time. So I'm excited for 2024 for employers to not say lip service about them yeah. talking about their people. I'm actually talking about employers investing in services that people actually use and then there's a real return on investment for
2: them using it, both
1: financially, like,
2: organizationally,
1: and societally.
0: That's awesome.
2: There's probably going to be more and more studies coming out, need about or illustrating the bifurcation between companies that take the mental health of their employees into account versus those that don't. And you're going to, it'll likely be reflected in, if they're publicly traded, the stock performance, because you alluded to all of the second and third degree effects of taking care or not taking care of the mental health of your employees, um, but other sort of overall business performance that may not be reflected in the stock price. So I don't know if there's anything you want to share there, but I I would imagine the more this is talked about, the more data uh, is going to appear about this.
1: Yeah. Uh, A couple of things, because I am a nerd, so I'll just say a couple of nerd things really quickly. So I I wrote my thesis at at Cambridge on um, the risk of overestimation of terrorists, risks, which is a weird thing to say out loud, yeah. but it's, a, it's, it's effectively running, hey, when you do a Bayesian analysis on something, there's a veneer of objectivity, but underneath the, the, ma- the complicated math, there's a bunch of subjectivity, which is to say that in a complex system, you cannot one-for-one one measure the inputs that directly relate to an output. So we are early days on understanding what well-being does for all aspects of our life. Right, kind of like we're in early days. We're still trying to figure out what, how social media positively or maybe not positively affects us. We're in stupid yeah. early days for what artificial intelligence does for us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yep. like, so I would say we're early, but the studies already are pretty clear. Right. You don't got to take my. You don't got to take my opinion of that. You got to take like. You know, the Gallup poll, every Gallup study, every quarter comes out like, hey, shocking news. People want to be individually known and valued. Shocking news. uh, The empathy and mutual affinity is like core to a competency for a company, right? Like it's like if you don't read that and like look at the study, like I don't know what to tell you. Or Deloitte study about like, hey, we did a meta analysis and this is how much dollars you get back for every dollar you put in. It's kind of like, hey, I know soda's not good. Right? Like, I I don't, but I'll find a study that might suggest that Diet Coke that I drink once a week isn't bad for me.
2: Confirmation bias.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I can justify it, I guess. Right? Or we can just face reality for what it is. Work like, it's not hard, guys. If we want to be individually known and valued, why in the heck would we think that an organization shouldn't provide that in a way to their employee base? Because organizations are legal constructs, they're not people. People make the company. That's why we say unlock your inner contribution because actually the competitive advantage of a company is just literally walk around in their people and it's up to us as leaders to unlock that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Vinny, I'm going to switch gears on you for a second and, and bring it back to the second act. If we have audience members who are thinking about the transition like you took, like I've taken, like Michael's taken and wanting to go into their second act, what are some of the things you would recommend they consider in both an entrepreneurial, um, and mental health perspective?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's a great question. I would say the first thing I, I mean, I'm going to say this until I, you know, leave this earth probably. Hey, the, your first act, your second act, your third act, they're all important, but the actor is more important than the act. Mm. The oh. actor's always gonna be more important than the act. Um, like I tell my my kids, Nehemiah and Nila, like, hey, I will love you because you're my son and my daughter, not because of what you do. I don't care about. You. I mean, like, it's great you get good grades or you do well in sports. whatever. Yeah. It don't matter. Like it's cool, but the reality is there's nothing you can change about who you are, and how that affects my love. Like it's 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 just there. Yeah. Uh, I don't live like that every day. I need to, but it's but it's like it's a it's a conviction that I'm going to try to live up to, and that's true for all of us, right? The act is great. The actor is way more important. Now, using that metaphor, if it's a good story, which all of our lives are good stories, there are gonna be some acts that are like, suck, right? What plot line do we wanna be a part of if it's always safe? Right. With no risk. Yeah. With no requirement of courage. With no struggle. Nobody. Nobody wants to watch that. Nobody wants to participate in that. We might feel in the moment of struggle a fear of challenge that we don't want to be here but that's who that's what makes us us right and so like hey if you're trying to go for a second act just know that there's going to be a couple of acts that are going to suck and I don't want to pretty that up I want to tell you cuz the more you're prepared for it the better like no. expectation of like it's going to be a grind a little bit but you're going to be better for it and the other thing I would say is that like you're you can do a lot of things to ameliorate the highs and lows of these acts basic things. Things that, like I told you, you don't need a lot of complicated studies. Ancient wisdom and science have proven this since the beginning of time. Hey, if you sleep like seven, eight hours, it's pretty good for you, right? If I, can, you, I it, can
2: attest to that over the last <laughs> couple right. of days. I, I had, I went from a bad night's sleep to a great night's sleep last night and I am a million times better today.
1: Yeah. I, I, I couldn't go to sleep last night. Like No joke. I couldn't sleep last night. I woke up at two kind of laid in bed till four, woke up at four, and then like kicked my day off. And so like, I'm going to be a hot mess by the time I get (laughs) home tonight, right? Yeah. Like, I I just know that, right? Yeah. But but sleep, eating well, right? Getting physically active, being outside for 20, 30 minutes a day. These are like not any rich or poor, old or young, we can all do those. They're immediately accessible to us. The other thing that I've been really thinking about, last thing I'll say is just like hey, there's a rhythm to life. And what I'm trying to do is figure out what my rhythm looks like for me so that I can most contribute what I have to the world. And what I have found, and I've been kind of nerding out on, is um, I was in the Marines, and I, and I have this weird thing about what you, you know, what's another opposite version or a version of the Marines but in a different world, which is, I, I think, about monks. I'm an extreme personality, so I want to be at the pinnacle of whatever I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I think about people about contemplation. I think of monks. And if we think about our day, if we kind of go into monk mode, if you will, we get up in the morning, we we, we pray or we, we meditate or we contemplate the things that matter to us. We journal. We do the things that feel, fill our spirit and our soul. Then we go to marine mode, which is what I call like, hey, go out there and execute. Have courage. Put something at risk. Move the ball forward. Go do something that matters right? Nice. Yeah. And then you end the day with monk mode again. You kind of bookend your day with this contemplation because contemplation is a core necessity to contribu- uh, contribution. And you can't contribute in a sustainable fashion if you don't contemplate. And so this, it's this yin and this yang. And so that's how I'm thinking about it. Ordering my day is monk, marine, monk mode, or contemplation drives contribution and with contemplation.
0: We had our own marine monk, right? James Mattis,
1: That's right. Uh, That's right. He's a freak, obviously. uh, That's
2: right.
0: Wow. That's really good.
2: Yeah. That's a, that's a great way for us to wrap it up. And I like how you express that thought as, as your rhythm, right? But you, as you said earlier, everybody's got a different rhythm. Um, and you're there through Forte to help them figure that out. So I love it. I love it. Well, guys,
1: thanks for, for your time. And Sorry for getting a little intense in in our broadcast a little bit, but I I deeply care about obviously my mom and dad and my wife and my kids, but also like the, the challenge of our time. And I think it's, it's our way of serving in some ways, uh, the, the need of today.
0: Well, Vinny, your passion and your love for people shines through, you know, whether it's at Forte, whether it's in the Marine Corps, whether it's just serving your wife and kids, that passion is evident in you and, and really amazing story. Thanks for sharing it with us yeah. and, you know, sharing it with our audience.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me all and look forward to continuing to watch y'all and listening to y'all's journey as, as the podcasts come uh, across
2: yeah. the internet. Thanks for having yeah. me. Vineet, if, if people want to get a hold of you or find out more about your company, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: That's a great question. I think if they just look up com, you can learn more about us as a company and, and
2: how we're changing uh, people's lives all around the United States. Love it. Excellent. Yeah. All right. All right. We'll be sure to include Venet's information in the episode details when uh, this goes out, and we look forward to reconnecting with everyone next week. Venet, thank you so much for yeah, joining right. us thank today. You guys. Thank you. See awesome. We'll see, see you.
1: The second act with Michael and John stars Michael Newborn and John Ballinger. The podcast is produced by Seltzer Kings. For more information on the show, check out MichaelandJohn.com. Or if you'd like to get involved in the conversation, give the guys a shout
0: on their socials at The Second Act with Michael and John on most platforms. Thanks for
2: listening. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.